Well, good morning, Mainstream. It is good to see all of you here again. Uh, happy Sunday to you all. It's always such a great thing to have the time to fellowship with you and just get caught up a little bit on where you are with life and what's going on with each of you. So grateful for the time that I've had with some of you this morning already. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. That's going to be the passage where we are with one another once again. And I, I trust that this series, Through the Beatitudes, uh, again, my intention is to go through uh, really the whole Sermon on the, sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' really greatest extended session of teaching that's recorded for us over multiple chapters here. Uh, but you can't really get too far before you hit the Beatitudes right there up front. It's probably the greatest sermon introduction of all time, uh, and it has been certainly a challenge to me, a blessing to me, and it has strengthened me in my own walk. And I hope that it is having a similar effect uh, in your Christian walk as you uh, think about these commands that our Lord has given to us. And we've been um, in this text and uh, are taking a little bit more time going through it than I originally had anticipated just because there is so much that is attached to each of these concepts in the Beatitude. And that's okay. We're not in a rush. We're, I don't think we're going anywhere soon. Uh, so we'll continue to kind of forge our way through this here together today and essentially pick up where we left off the last time we were together. In the year 1862, the Civil War was raging in our nation and it was tearing the country absolutely apart. And there were multiple different fronts in that war. There were many men who were making their names as new generals and future national politicians and heroes and leaders. And out on the western front of the war, there was one particular general named Ulysses S. Grant, who until that point in his life really had been an abject failure in everything he had put his hand to. And when the war broke out, he was 39 years old and somehow managed essentially from a human perspective through sheer happenstance to be put in charge of a particular army on the western front of the war. Before long, he began through sheer willpower and tactical brilliance to win battles and people began to take notice because at that point in the war, no one was winning anything except for U.S. Grant. And history records for us that after one particular decisive battle, the opposing general that was fighting Ulysses S. Grant sued for peace, and he said, look, if you accept these particular terms, we will surrender to you. If you let us keep our sidearms, if you let us march away and have some traditional honors, we will surrender. And Grant's reply, which is now very famous in the annals of military history, said, there can be no surrender but unconditional surrender. You don't get to keep your weapons, you don't get to walk away, you don't get to re-enlist, and you do not get to keep your dignity. You have lost, and I am going to forever remind you of the fact that you have lost. And the newspapers of the day lauded U.S. Grant a hero for this statement, and they began playing off of his initials, Ulysses S. Grant, and they started calling him Unconditional Surrender Grant, U.S. Grant. And for the rest of the war, he was known as Unconditional Surrender Grant, and it really became, for him, a trademark of sorts, where every battle that he fought, the enemy cringed and cowered in fear, knowing that if they lost, they would be given essentially no quarter. They would be told that they must surrender unconditionally, be taken prisoner, and marched away, but they would not have their dignity left intact. And it really became his trademark. His message to his enemy was, if you mess with us, you're not going to get to walk away unscathed. 
In a national warfare, that might be an, an understandable response to an opposing army. I'm not questioning the rightness or the wrongness of that particular military tactic. However, it is an illustration that demonstrates to us that there are many people in this world, in our lives, perhaps even in our church, perhaps even in your home and yourself, where sometimes we can tend to live this way, where people oftentimes who claim the name of Christ can very often refuse to exercise mercy in any situation whatsoever. And they seek to apply a code of unconditional surrender to their life situations because they believe that that is noble to show strength and dignity and gravitas. And I will not stoop to humble myself. I will not stoop to demonstrate mercy. And they disdain the weakness of co-workers around them. They refuse to humble themselves and surrender to their spouse in marriage. They, they refuse to offer forgiveness when they've been wronged under any circumstances. And as Christ is going to teach us here this morning, there is nothing heroic or noble about a posture of unconditional surrender, a lack of mercy when it comes to your Christian walk and your spiritual life. Now, this morning... We have been going through the Beatitudes together, and we're going to be looking at this Beatitude here in verse 7 that says very simply, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, at first, that may seem like a circular statement or a bit of a tautology to all of us, where we're saying, wait, if I give it, I'm going to get it, and if I get it, will I give it? And, and we're going to un unravel that here together this morning as we think about the ramifications of God's mercy in our lives, and then the reciprocal mercy that we are expected to demonstrate to others as well and figure out exactly what that looks like. But I, I do want to get a bit of a running start here into the Beatitudes. And if this is your first day with us here today, or if you've missed some of the previous messages as we've been going through these principles, I want to review here just a little bit. You see, the Beatitudes are not something that you produce in yourself by sheer force of will. As we've talked about, these are things that God produces in you and that you will then commensurately continue to grow in and crave. And, and these are statements that all build one upon the next and they must all be present in the life of the believer. You see, these are the things that are a hallmark of someone who has met Jesus Christ and is living as one of his disciples. This is the way the life of the disciple will look. This is what a life that has been marked by grace, that has been marked by mercy, will naturally look like what Jesus describes here in this text. And we started out several weeks ago by looking at the expected relationship of the disciple to God, and that really is the subject of the first three Beatitudes there in verses 3 through 5 where Jesus says, when spiritual life begins, here is the right perspective on God that the one who has been redeemed will have. The right perspective on God in the heart of a redeemed person will recognize that you are nothing before God, that you have nothing to your name that is of any merit whatsoever. You are a pauper. You are poor before the throne of heaven. And that recognition of your own poverty there in verse 3 then moves into a response of mourning. That when you realize who you are before God, you must necessarily be mournful over your sin. 
There must be a deep sorrow that exists within your heart when you've truly recognized who you are before God. You'll, you'll mourn over your state of bankruptcy. Then going on from there, you will also live with a spirit of meekness as well that is obvious in light of your condition before God. And that's why he says, blessed are the gentle, for they are the ones who will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, he says there. Blessed are those who recognize who they are and then live accordingly. That's the perspective on God that we must have if we are to be his disciples, recognizing our poverty, mourning our sin, and living with a spirit of gentle meekness that is fully dependent upon the Lord our God. That is our perspective on God. And then after that, we began to move into this next section, these next three Beatitudes here in verses 6 through 8, where we're told, once your perspective on God has been made right, here is what your heart, here is what your life will then look like. And the last time we were together, we started in on that very first uh, beatitude in, in that section. What is the life of one who has been redeemed? What is the life of someone who rightly understands their relationship to God look like? Well, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And Last time we were together, we looked at thoroughly at that concept. What does it mean to be hungry for righteousness? We talked about the strong desire that comes with the redeemed heart to be righteous and to be like God, to be, to be near him, to pursue the righteousness that is owned by him that he is then capable of delivering to us. And there's this, this craving this hunger, if you will, this desperate sense of needing to get it and needing to be conformed to him that naturally comes into the life of the believer once they have been reconciled to God. So here in this section, we're talking about essentially three life manifestations that flow from a heart that has a right perspective on God. The first thing we said last week is that the life that has a right perspective on God will manifest a new desire. And then we left off here in verse 7 where we find out that the, the life that has a right perspective on God will also manifest a heart of mercy. And that's where we need to pick things up. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you have a hunger for righteousness, Jesus tells us, you will also have a desire to demonstrate mercy just as you've been shown mercy to those who are around you in need of that mercy. So we have to ask some questions of these concepts here. This is a pretty short statement, and it seems pretty obvious, but really once you dig down into this, personally as I started to study for this, I was amazed at the wide-ranging nature of this theme of mercy through Scripture. There is a lot that could be said about this, and there is no way in the next 35 minutes we can cover Everything the scripture has to say about this theological idea of mercy and the ramifications that it has to have upon our lives, but we'll do our best, okay? So we're going to dig into this and just ask some questions about, about this concept, okay? So the first question we have to ask about this idea of manifesting a heart of mercy, it's very simple. Why is mercy so important, okay? Why is mercy so important? Why do we need to show mercy? Why do we need to show mercy in order to receive mercy? Why is it so important? Well, in the Roman world, mercy, you see, it was a sign of tremendous weakness. In fact, one famous Roman spokesman wrote and recorded for history that mercy 
is the disease of the soul. That was how the Roman world viewed this concept of mercy. In fact, in their day, if a child was deformed or if it had some kind of deficiency or genetic disorder, the Romans believed that it was better to kill the child than to show any sort of mercy at all. And the ancient world is filled with accounts of people leaving children out in the field to die by exposure because they would rather do that than have mercy upon this child and raise them tenderly and carefully because something was wrong with that child, according to their minds. And to be merciful was a sign of weakness. And the same thing was true in the Hebrew world as well, in the Jewish world. You turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 38, and then again at verse 43. I'll show you here. Jesus essentially quotes certain parables or certain proverbs from their day, and he says, here's what you've heard said, but I want to tell you something different. Here's how the Jewish people thought about the concept of mercy. Jesus says in verse 38 of this same chapter, chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the maxim according to which they lived. But Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too, and give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. See, Jesus was saying, you people understand the concept of retribution and vengeance. But I'm saying, that's not how you're to live. You're to have mercy. Jesus goes on. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Just for the sake of time, we'll skip down here to verse 46. Because if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. If you will greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect in the way you demonstrate mercy to others just as your Father, your Heavenly Father, is perfect in how He has demonstrated mercy to you. And as Jesus, in those verses, really expands upon the theme that He has introduced here to us in verse 7, He gives us the answer to our question, our very first question. Why is mercy important? Because it is a clear picture of the nature of who God is, you see. It's a picture of God himself. And I want to trace this theology just a little bit for us so that we can understand the heart of God and really the force of what he's trying to communicate when he says, you should be merciful. Why is that so important to him? The reason why is because it's a picture of who he himself is, okay? So let me trace this for you and, and stick with me because we're going to flip around a little bit. Because I want you to understand how essential this concept of mercy is to the person of God, because that ultimately ends up being the answer to our question. Why is it important? Because it's the nature of who God is. So, go with me back to Exodus chapter 32. Okay, we're going to flip back there. We're going to track our way just through a couple of different passages. Exodus chapter 32. <clears throat> In this passage, God has essentially just finished giving His people the law. He reveals Himself to His people, and in response here in chapter 32, the first part of the chapter, the people 
Instead of bowing low before the Lord, they ask for a cow. And Moses essentially freaks out. God promises judgment. I'm paraphrasing now. Okay. God promises judgment against his own people. And Moses then begins to beg for God's mercy upon them. And in verses 33, 19 through 20, God responds to Moses' plea for mercy. And God says to Moses, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And here it is. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. What's he saying? When he wants to manifest the nature of who he is in a visible way to those who are watching, you see, the glory of God is such that no man can fully see him and live. But God says, what you can see in order to know me better is my mercy. It is my compassion. He says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion and grace upon whom I will have grace. That much you can see, but you cannot see my face. And Moses says, well, I must know more about you. I need to know more about you if I'm going to effectively lead these people. And so in chapter 34, God reveals himself and he shows Moses the backside of his glory. And what is the backside of God's glory? As God just lifts up the very fragment of his veil, allowing Moses just to see a little piece of who he is. What does Moses see in verse 6 of chapter 34? Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, Yahweh, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Four different concepts. Compassion, patience, graciousness, and loving kindness all four of which are ways to describe the concept of mercy. So much so that when a thousand years later, Greek-speaking Jews went back to translate the Old Testament into the Greek language, they used the word mercy here in this verse to translate that word for loving kindness. That word loving kindness, exact same word, for mercy that is used over in Matthew chapter 5. Amazing. In a word, one word, who is God? When he goes to reveal himself to man, he is known to us by the attribute of mercy. Because here is a God who loves to save and forgive. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have grace upon whom I will have grace. He says, I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And Moses' response down in chapter 34, verse 8, is to bow low towards the earth and worship. Turn with me over to the book of Jonah. You say, well, is that just a one-off instance where we see the nature of God being revealed as being merciful? Well, there's all sorts of places that we could go, but go with me to Jonah chapter 4, because it's very interesting here. God takes that same principle of mercy that there was ascribed to his own people Israel, and here he sticks it on to the Gentiles as well, outside his covenant. We talked about this back through our Minor Prophet series, but I want to remind you of it again. 
where God essentially tells Jonah, go and proclaim my mercy to the Ninevites. And Jonah doesn't get it. You all know the story. He runs away and God forces him then to go back and proclaim the possibility of mercy to them. And shocker of shawl shockers, they actually repent. And now Jonah is the one to freak out. And he says here in chapter 4, verse 2, Lord, was this not what I said while I was in my own country? He says, I knew you were going to do this. And in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew, here it is, that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Again, same word for mercy. Abundant in mercy because you are one who relents concerning the calamity of your judgment. He says, how could you do this? I knew that this is who you are. I knew that you were a God of mercy. And that's why I didn't want to come and proclaim that mercy to these people, lest they listen, which they have. But Jonah knew good and well who God was because he had read Moses' recording of God's nature. And throughout the Old Testament, that, that term that is used there in Hebrew to describe God's loving kindness is a word that is very difficult to translate into English. It's, it's translated loving kindness in our Bibles, but it's a word that combines the ideas of loyalty, love, compassion, mercy, and grace all at the same time. And again, when the Jews translated the Old Testament into the Greek language, they used the word in their language, mercy. That's the word they translated. It's, it's to them the most obvious attribute of God. And thus, when we go back over to Matthew chapter 5, when we're told to have mercy, what, is, what are we being told? Why is that so significant and important? It's because we're being told to act in a way that is in keeping with the most visible attribute of God's character as he interacts with man. We're being told that God has loved us. He has demonstrated his loyalty to us, to forgive us, to be patient with us, to be compassionate and gracious. He is, in short, a God who has a vibrant, close, merciful relationship to us. In short, to be merciful is to act and be consistent with the nature of God himself. And there are 245 other places throughout the Old Testament where that same idea is communicated. You see, when God has made a promise to his people to be merciful, even when they are undeserving, God always follows through with them. Even when those people rejected him, he was still compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. You see, when you look into the face of God, Mercy is what stares back at you. See, a God who does what he says he is going to do so that he can be known as one who is kind and compassionate despite your rebellious nature. And it's this very attribute that made you a way to get into his family. And that's why mercy is so important to our God. It's because it's who he is. In order to get into his kingdom, you have to receive that mercy. And here we're informed that once you're in his kingdom, you're expected to show mercy. The fruit of a hunger for righteousness is a heart of mercy. When you see God for the very first time, the most notable, no, noticeable feature of his face is 
His mercy. It's not His judgment. It's not His justice. When He reveals Himself for who He is, He reveals Himself to be a God who is merciful. And that's why this concept of mercy is so important here to our Lord Savior Jesus Christ. It's why He gives us the command, be merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because they're acting in a way that is consistent with the character of God. So I ask you the question this morning, in light of the importance of this concept to Jesus and God the Father, when people interact with you for the very first time, do they walk away similarly impressed with your spirit of mercy just as you walked away impressed with God's? That's why this is important. So if that's why this is important, because it's the very character of God himself, then what is that supposed to look like in my life? That's our next question. What does this mercy look like in our lives today? Well, the good news is Matthew gave us a perfect example of what this looks like over in Matthew chapter 20. Turn there with me, because there's a perfect illustration of what this is supposed to look like in our lives. We, can't, we, we could, and we will, spend some time describing practically what mercy should look like. But I want you to see it first in the life of Christ, because that will give you an image in living color of what mercy is supposed to look like to begin with. Okay, So we'll, we'll go to his life. Here's what we're told in verse 29. Jesus is leaving Jericho, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. There is a road that connects the city of Jericho, and it goes up through the mountains all the way to the city of Jerusalem as it leaves Jericho. And Jesus is going there for the purpose of the triumphal entry. And in his omniscience, he knows full and well what's going to happen when he gets there. So Jesus has a very busy day as he's leaving Jericho, right? And you can still go and see that road there today. That road is still there even now. Coming out of Jericho, going up into the mountains, the original Roman road that this took place on is still there. In fact, Irv Busnitz and I were over in Jericho several years ago for some business for the seminary, and we were there with a tour guide who just happened to be there for the day. Now, I have to tell you that, that Jericho is a city that is currently controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Okay? They do not like the Israeli people there at all. In fact, the license plates in the city of Jericho are different license plates than in Israel so that people in Jericho know if you're an Israeli or if you're a Palestinian. Okay? They are not friendly towards the Israelis at all. And so it's just Irv and me and the tour guide. And we're driving through this city and we're thinking to ourselves, is this a very good idea right now? And the tour guide said, oh, don't worry about it. And he said, and just after he finished explaining the license plate deal to us, and guess which license plate we have on the back of our rental car? It's not a Palestinian one. So we're driving through, and everybody's kind of looking at us long-eyed, and I said, this doesn't feel very comfortable right now. He says, don't worry about it. They can tell that you're American. Don't worry about it. I said, okay. So we got there, managed to escape with our lives intact, and we're driving out of the city of Jericho, and I say to myself, I'm glad we made it through that. That was good. And the tour guide says, hey, pull off to the right here. I want us to get out for a minute. And there was this little kind of convenience store that was right there. And he says, but just make sure that you stay on the other side of the car from the men who are sitting out front of the convenience store. I'm saying to myself, how can this possibly be a good plan right now? 
so we get out of the car and we're looking at this road. It's there. He wanted to show us the original Roman road and these guys are sitting there watching us and they did not look any too happy that we were there with them. And when he had explained to us, this is the road, you know, coming up out, coming up out of Jericho, uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jesus walked this road many times. I'm thinking to myself, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh. And I'm looking over my shoulder the entire time, making sure that somebody doesn't pull out a gun and shoot me in the back. But we got back in the car, and I was super grateful to get out of there. What I remember from that experience, from that kind of harried experience where I'm saying, I, I am not supposed to be here right now, what I remember about that particular spot is the nature of that road. Okay? Coming out of Jericho, it's a roadway that runs right up against the edge of a very deep ravine okay, that goes up into the mountains. And as it goes up into the mountains, it becomes a drop-off that essentially commensurate to the size almost of the Grand Canyon. I mean, massive canyon. But right as it comes out of Jericho, there's this big, big, deep, maybe 30, 40-foot drop-off right by the side of the road. In the first century, they did not have guardrails. They still don't have guardrails there today, but they definitely didn't back then. And that's the setting for what's about to happen here in Matthew chapter 20. And my reason for saying all that is that this is not a good road for blind men to be on. That was my takeaway. Very long story to get to that point. Okay? Not a good road for two blind dudes to be sitting next to because they're going to fall off and die. So these guys are in a little bit of imminent physical danger as you get here into this text. And the text tells us this. As they were leaving Jericho, there were no guns at that point, but a large crowd followed him down the road. And two blind men were sitting by the road in danger just by being there. And they heard that Jesus was passing by. And they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Notice how they address him there. They, they use his name two times. They start and finish their statement by calling upon him, demonstrating their knowledge of his nature. They call him Lord and the son of David. They're saying, you are God and you are Messiah there. And what is their request? It's a request that is framed up to demonstrate the reality that they knew exactly who they were and who he was. They don't say, be kind to us. My request probably would have been, please make me unblind, heal me. That's not what they say. What do they say? Have mercy on us. Because they recognize the fact that they do not deserve anything from this Lord God. And they say, have mercy upon us. They, they fully recognize who they are. And the crowd, listen to this, does not capitulate to their request. The crowd sternly tells them to be quiet. The crowd, instead of having mercy, says, shut up, be quiet, sit down, fall over the edge for all we care. We don't care, but be quiet. Don't distract this guy. But they cried out all the more again. Lord, son of David, trying to get his attention now. They put both titles up front. Have mercy on us. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Jesus has a pretty busy day in front of him, right? I mean, he's going up to, Jer up to Jerusalem, a hike of many miles uphill, so that he can walk into the city of Jerusalem and be crowned the king of the Jews, essentially. It's a busy day. It's a well-known narrative in Bible history. He's just starting on his journey. He's just leaving the city of Jericho. You know, when I start a drive, let's say to Sacramento, the last thing I want to do is stop in Castaic, right? 
when you start a trip that's of any length at all, you don't want to stop right up front. For Jesus, it's a big day. And on the other end is a big event. And these guys want Jesus to make a pit stop a few hundred yards outside the city gate. That's what they're asking for. And they, they have this persistent faith, acknowledging that they don't deserve his compassion. And they still ask. They say, we want our eyes opened, which is a loaded statement for sure, as we'll see here in a minute. And what does the text say? Jesus stopped and called to them and says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And look how Jesus responds. Just left on a trip. He's got a busy day in front of him. He is moved with compassion. It's the same word for mercy. He is moved with mercy. It's a word that means to internalize something. The imagery there is something that could be viscerally felt. It could actually be felt inside his gut where it's such a strong sense of being moved to mercy that he feels, actually feels this compassion for them. And here's Jesus getting ready to go up to Jerusalem and later that week rip the blinders off a trillion souls so that the light of the glory of God could be seen in the act of redemption. He's got big things on his mind, and yet here he stops on the side of the road and feels the pain of these men in danger as they ask for their eyes to be opened. And he heals them. And immediately, we're told, they regained their sight and they followed him. That's what mercy looks like. That's the picture of it right there. We're told in the text that he stopped and was moved to mercy. Again, here's what that means now for us as we go back to Matthew chapter 5. This was not an occasional compassionate act. That's not what Matthew or Jesus is calling us to here in Matthew. It rather speaks of our demeanor towards all of life, towards all of people, towards every circumstance. And I, I take you to Matthew chapter 20 to demonstrate to you that this is, this is more than just a theological idea here. It requires that rubber meet the road and that theology meets practice because mercy, it equals the ideas of compassion, sympathy, helpfulness. It includes the idea of forgiving those who have committed guiltiness against you. It also means to have compassion for those who are suffering and God puts them in your way and despite how busy you are, you stop and you have mercy upon them. You see, mercy, it doesn't just feel compassionately. It shows compassion, and there's a difference. It's possible to feel badly for someone, but do nothing for them. But true, genuine, biblical mercy stops in its tracks, and it demonstrates kindness, compassion, grace, love, and goodness. It doesn't just think, it acts. You see, mercy, as we've already seen, it is the freshest expression of God's heart towards us. And therefore, it is also the aroma then in our life of a life that has been redeemed. That's why it comes directly after a hunger for righteousness. If you have a hunger for righteousness, you will be... When people come into contact with us, do they inherently sense that something is different about us? Do they, through our redeemed expression of mercy, sense the power of God at work in our lives that has made us this way? 
We go back to the life of Christ, and I refer you to his life, and he is, again, the best example of this. Hebrews 2.17 says, This is the reason why Christ came to you. It's an intimate and concise picture of what you've received. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? So that he might become, listen to this, a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God so that he could make a propitiation for your sin. He came to become merciful. He came to show you the nature of who God is so that you could have a relationship with him and be conformed into his image and thus stand someday in his presence. So Jesus' mercy wasn't just limited to two blind guys on the side of the road. You see, his mercy is the gateway by which you have spiritual life at all to begin with. That's why it's important. And if you're asking yourself the question, well, mercy, it's the kind of this nebulous idea. I'm not really exactly sure what it's supposed to look like. Look no further than the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Because he came to be a merciful high priest so that you could know God. That's what it's supposed to look like. So we've seen. Why is mercy important? What does mercy look like? Now, let's think. Where does this mercy come from? How do I develop a heart of mercy in myself? What does that look like here in this verse where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful. How do I get it? Well, we can answer that by looking at the flip side of mercy. If Jesus is the ultimate example of it, what does it look like to not be merciful at all? Go with me to over to Matthew chapter 18. This idea of mercy, it's a theme throughout Matthew's gospel, and he, he illustrates it on a number of occasions, both in the life of Christ, and he illustrates the lack of it in the parables as well. And Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared with a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he, I just want to read this story for you. When he, began, when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated him before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt what? Compassion, mercy upon him, and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which was nothing in compared to the debt that had just been forgiven, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, I will repay you. Exactly the same statement. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you. I had mercy on you. For the debt, because you pleaded with me, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? 
And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. And Jesus says here, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive and have mercy upon his brother from your heart. What's he saying? He's saying, People who do not have mercy do not belong to the Lord. People who do have mercy are those who have been redeemed and therefore do belong to the Lord. So if we're trying to answer the question, where does mercy come from? It comes from salvation. It comes from a heart that has been redeemed. That is the only possible source of a lifestyle of mercifulness. Romans 1, 29 through 31 gives us this long list of sins that God hates. And guess which sin is listed at the apex, the conclusion, the grand finale of the list? Unmercifulness. You see, mercy must only and can only come from a redeemed nature. It comes from having known mercy in an experiential way because for us, the natural thing is to not be merciful. It's the unconditional surrender syndrome. It's the Israeli special forces motto. We don't get even, we get ahead. That's the natural heart of man. We don't get even, we get ahead. Which means that if that's the natural heart of man, it cannot be the natural heart of the believer. If a lack of mercy demonstrates that you don't belong in the kingdom, then what does the presence of mercy state? that you are part of the family. Thus, mercy comes from membership in God's family. And in order to be merciful, you have to have been made different. You have to have been redeemed. And just as desire for sin brings about death, a desire for righteousness, we're told here in this text, brings about a life that is merciful. That's why this one comes after a hunger and thirst for righteousness and not before. Your ability to be merciful, your desire for mercy, they are directly connected back into your experience of mercy. Those who have found mercy, you see, they know what it looks like. They have felt it, they have tasted it, they have touched it, and they then go and do it. Because when you've known mercy, you have an awareness of the fact that it has touched every single last corner of your life. And when you've experienced it to that level, you must necessarily needs go out and do the same. And that was the ultimate picture that was given to us by Jesus. Luke 23, 34, we're told about Jesus on the cross, and he is saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I mean, here the greatest criminal act in all of human history, the execution of an innocent man, and what is he spending his time doing as they're casting lots and dividing up his garments among, amongst themselves? He's imaging the person of God by calling for God to be merciful upon these wretched sinners. You say, Jesus did it, but he was God. And this is hard. Do you know what this man did to me? Do you know what they did to my family? Do you know what this woman said about me? There will never be any surrender. And here, in the book of Matthew, Jesus has given us a very clear litmus test for membership in God's kingdom, and it's very simple. Are you willing to forgive wrongs against you? 
Are you willing to show mercy? Are you willing to love those who are unlovely? Are you willing to be merciful towards those who have injured you? You say, well, that's just too much. It's too hard. Well, we need to keep reading the verse. Because Jesus here gives us the result of what mercy looks like. You say it's too hard, but is that difficulty worth the blessing that comes? Blessed are the merciful. And here's the, the other half. Why are they blessed? For they are the ones who are going to get more mercy. That's why. That is the motivation for why you are to evidence mercy towards those who do not deserve it. It's because this is the only pathway to finding ultimate mercy yourself. See, the result of mercy is that you're now a vessel of mercy who has been reserved for an inheritance in heaven. If you get some, then you have to give some. And then once you've done that, we're told here that God is going to proceed to dump an infinite load of it upon your head. If you will exercise mercy just as you've been shown mercy, he will give you all mercy. He says here, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive and be filled up in totality in fullest quantity. They will receive mercy. Romans 9.22 puts it this way. Let's go over there together. He says, what if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And what if he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory? You see, God has prepared some vessels for wrath and judgment, so that those who were created to be vessels of mercy might know the fullest weight of the glory of what God has done in showing and giving mercy at all. Why does he do this? Romans 9 says, because it's who he is. He is mercy. Why did he pick you beforehand? Because of his mercy. Why did he follow through? Because of his mercy. Why will you stand before him someday having been glorified? It's due to his mercy. So that he might make known to you the riches of his glory. You see, you've been given mercy. And you show mercy. And then in the end, you will inherit an ocean of mercy. What greater manifestation of that principle is there than the moment that you will cross heaven's threshold? If mercy is defined as not giving someone what they rightfully deserve, then there is no greater glory, there is no greater mercy than your entrance into a place where you definitely do not belong. See, your sin, it has won you a place in hell. And yet the day is going to come when you pass through the gates of heaven. And when you walk across that threshold, that is the moment where you will understand the infinity of the mercy of God. And Jesus says, it's, it's knowing the little bit of mercy you've already been given by being brought into the family. And it's anticipating the ocean of mercy that you will find when you walk through the gates of heaven, having been fully redeemed and glorified. It's all that mercy that surrounds you on both ends of the, the chronological timeline in your redemption that now should cause you to be merciful today. That's why we exercise mercy. 
So how does this apply to our life? Well, at church, you see someone in your Bible study who's in the midst of a searing trial. Are you there for them, ready to minister mercy to them? At work, you get overlooked for that promotion or someone else takes credit for your work. Are you going to hold a grudge and declare war against them? In your relationships, perhaps it's your neighbor who is really just a piece of work, and yet they end up landing in a tough spot. Have you acted in a way where you are able to bring the gospel to bear upon their tough spot, even though they've been a piece of work? It's that Facebook friend when they say stuff online against you that causes your jaw to hit the ground. Do you retaliate or do you seek to turn around and serve them in real life? In your parenting, and this one might resonate with you, when your kids are utterly thankless, I didn't say useless, but thankless, when they despise your counsel, when they grow up a little bit and seek to injure you, when they've been ugly, whether they're two or 20, and then they need your help, are you there, ready to minister mercy to either their scraped knee or their bruised soul? In your marriage, when your spouse refuses to humble him or herself, will you still forgive them, serve them, and exercise a humility that has the fragrance of Christ about it? You see, there are infinite applications of this concept. Mercy, it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just a Jericho Road kind of moment where you say, I've done my good merciful deed for the day and I move on. You see, this is what it is to characterize us as people of the living God who is first and foremost a God of mercy. In short, whatever your situation is that is before you today, right now, or the rest of this week, we have to look at this verse this command and ask ourselves the question, does our response look like the face of God? Because that is the one whom we've been called to image. Does our response express the same mercy that we have been shown? That is how we're called to live. That is what defines the life of a believer. Let's close in prayer this morning. Our Father, we do thank you again for your word and its power, the teaching of your Son that has given us such clear instruction on how we are to live now uprightly before you. May his life be the mold of our own that we seek to pattern our behavior after, and may that be in every way the way by which we seek to please you by imaging the person of your Son. And this week, may that look like spirits hearts and lives that evidence the mercy that you have shown to us in such abundant quantities. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.